Good morning. Thank you for letting me be here. Thank you, Gary. It's been a pleasure knowing you for the last 10 years or so that we met. Um, and it's good to open the scriptures together. Uh, we get started. Have you ever been to a concert where you sat up in the, in the very top and you sit there and you watch out going on? It's a cool experience, but it's very different than sitting on the front row. You ever sit on the front row somewhere? It's just an intensity that's different from sitting up at the top. Uh, when I was a kid, my dad used to take me to baseball games. Uh, we grew up in Texas, and we'd drive over um, to Dallas to watch the Texas Rangers play. And we usually get decent seats out in the outfield somewhere. We'd go and do that. I'd love it. I just thought it was the coolest experience being in the stadium. And then one time, uh, I was a senior in college, and I was taking a trip with some friends of mine, and we were going to go watch a baseball game. And we were running super late. I mean, like, super late. And uh, I'm walking up with my friend of mine. And this guy comes out, and he's just all furious and mad. He's like, are you guys going to the game? He's like, yeah. He's like, you want my tickets? I was like, sure. And so he gives me these. He storms out. The Rangers are getting beat really bad. And we look at the tickets, and they were on the front row right behind the on-deck circle, like the back, just right there. And we're walking down there. I'm like, this is not the way I normally watch the baseball game. This is way different. And I was just glued to it. The intensity was awesome. And they were getting just destroyed. I didn't care. The front row seat was so sweet. And the problem is, though, I loved it, but it's ruined me from every baseball game since. Ruined me. I've gone a couple times. I'm just like, I can't afford those $500 tickets, so uh, I'm going to sit up here and eat my hot dog. But it's just, uh, it's just not as fun. There's something about being on the front row. It's just something about it. Being up that close, it just, it just drives me to want to see it again. And this morning, I want to share with you a scripture about watching God from the front row, about being involved with it on the front row. So if you have your scriptures, look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 with me. Take that out, look at it. And if you take notes this morning, uh, the main idea I want to communicate to you is this. Main idea, the front row of disciple-making ministry, the front row of disciple-making ministry is intended to bring you lasting joy when you intentionally engage your sphere of influence. That's the main idea I want to get. The front row disciple-making is intended to bring you lasting joy when you intentionally engage your sphere of influence. So I want to get to this. If you open your scripture today, before we get to the text, uh, this weekend is Memorial Day weekend. Um, it's a weekend we remember those who put on the uniform of the nation and then never took it off. And, uh, and I would not be surprised, living where we are, that there are some of you here that know folks that never took off the uniform. Uh, I do, and I assume you do in some ways. And so we just remember them and think over it and thank God for them and know that, yes, freedom is bought with our military, but is ultimately given by the hand of God. And how he chooses to use us through various ways, it is between him and, and him alone. But I'm grateful for it. Uh, I've worn a uniform in some capacity for almost 20 years. Going to college, was in ROTC and wore a uniform, and then commissioned the Air Force, and been doing that as a, as a weekend warrior for the last 14 years in some form or fashion. Uh, I've loved it. I've had an awesome time. And as I've been in the military, there's something when I was in college, and I was wearing this uniform, I put it on because I just thought college was easy, and I wanted to do something hard. So put on the military, put on a uniform. And some of y'all, I think, joined the military for the same reason, because just civilian life wasn't easy enough. You wanted to put, make it harder and, uh, and put on those uniforms. But something about being in college and wearing that 
gave me a love for those who do it. And, uh, and I've been involved in some ways. I knew the Lord wanted me to go into ministry when I was in college, and he wanted me to go serve in the military. I was like, Lord, I don't, I don't like doing anything. I'm not really good at stuff. He's like, don't worry, just love people. I was like, I don't really want to kill nobody. He's like, that's all right, just go be a chaplain. It's like, what's a chaplain? He's like, oh, you'll figure it out. And so I was like, how do you be a chaplain? Well, I figured out you got to go to seminary and all these other things. And as I was going through seminary, the Lord saw it fit, knew my wife and my family, that it would be good for me to not be active duty, but to serve the military in an active capacity. So I ended up going to Annapolis, Maryland, and been there for 10 years, just discipling young men and young women as they prepare for military service. It's been an awesome experience. But as I've done it, I've begun to love those folks. And, uh, and I've learned that the military, I've learned a few things about the military over the years. A couple things, many of y'all already know these, but I just kind of try to put them into words. A few, a few things I've learned. Something happens when you go through a military base. It, like, messes with your mind, and you all of a sudden get transported to some different world that's, like, 20 years behind the regular world, and you're there. And when you're there, you cease to be a person. You become your job. Like, you are what you do, which is super strange. It's just you are known, especially in the Navy, by what you do. And it's just an odd experience. Uh, I've also learned the government does not have a soul. Amen. It does not. It does not care about you. You are just a self-moving asset to the government. It's all you are. But I have learned there are people inside the government who actually see you as a soul with skin, not just a self-moving asset that actually love you and care for you. But it is not the system at all. Um, other things I've learned is that when in the military, you're constantly surrounded by people, constantly. The vast majority of them feel very isolated. You are, you're like, you're just, you miss the forest, and I don't know, it was something strange. You feel a stranger in a crowd. Most people do. And I think a lot that has to do is because you are your job, and, and it just, you can't hardly separate the two. But one thing, however, I love about the military is that it scatters you around the world, and you're away from your family, your biological family. But, but for those who, have intent, who are intentional, your friends become such good family. They become deeper than family. And because of the transit nation military, the military, I believe, is one of the most strategic places of world and American um, evangelization of any part in this country. Military is such a strategic mission field in America. Um, the church uh, that is in the military context gets to have an opportunity to impact a far larger geographical area than where they are. It's, it's an awesome opportunity. Being in Annapolis, which is a heavy military place, being down here in Norfolk, you get to have an impact far greater than the geographic area your church is at. Um, and for all these reasons and more, I love the military. And for those who are in and around a military culture, you get to have a front row seat, if you choose to, to see God at work in people's lives and, where he do- and what he does with them, if you choose to have an intentional attitude towards it. So as I, as we, before we open to 2 Timothy, um, I assume if you're here this morning, uh, it's not by accident. You didn't just drive down the street and go, oh, there's a church. I'm going to pull in here. Probably didn't happen. If you did, God brought you here. God brought you here because you desire to some extent to know him better by being here. I trust that's what's going on in your life. That's how you end up getting here. If that's true, Many of you have tasted and seen the goodness of God in your soul and your desire for others to have that same experience. 
Have you maybe been to a restaurant, maybe with a friend or your family, and you, and you order something special and you taste it, you're like, oh, this is so good. Here, try it. You know, that idea of trying it, you want someone else to experience what's happened to you. And as I read through 2 Timothy, man, there's such a, a, a movement of God that happened in my own soul that I just can't stop until you experience the same kind of joy he's given me. So if you look at me in 2 Timothy, I want to start, I'm going to focus on chapter 2, but I want to read through chapter 1, uh, just hit some highlights as we go through. What I love about, about these letters, Paul's letters, especially the personal ones, is that he's writing a personal letter, investing in his, his protege, investing in his, his beloved child, just caring for him, and we get to eavesdrop in on that conversation. And in that conversation between these two men, we get to learn a whole lot about God and what he has for us. So I want to look at this. 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as I did, as I did with my ancestors with clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember you with tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. His disciple gives him joy to watch his disciple follow Jesus. So then verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. Notice that Paul doesn't just know Timothy as this guy. He knows him and knows his family. There's a lot of guys I disciple that I don't even know their mother's name, much less their grandmother's name. Paul knew this guy, knew his real life, He didn't just know his job. He knew him. He didn't just know his job. He knew him. Verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you to land on my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor me as prisoners, but share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to his holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose. By grace and grace, which is he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages, in which now he's been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality um, to light through the gospel, for which I was anointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer the way I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know what I believe, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until the day which is entrusted to me. Follow the, the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and in love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And look at chapter 2. It says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I mean, Paul knew Timothy. He knew him well to his grandmother's name. And in that, he still saw it fit to remind him about the gospel, about that he was given a gift by grace, that, that Timothy did not earn his status with God, but God, in his love for him, worked it through him, saved his soul. And Paul, in his immediate beginnings of his encouragement, all of the instructions that happen in the next two chapters, he says to him, remember, gain strength by grace. Gain the strength by grace. Gain the strength to do and work and be. Gain it 
by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Gain it by the good news of Jesus. Gain it by that. Gain it by that. Say, how do you get strengthened? By remembering the gospel. By remembering what God's done for us. We put it before our eyes and put it before our ears. And whatever that's in our eyes or ears is on our mind. So whatever you look at, whatever you hear, those are things you think about. That's what you think about. And we pray that if it's on my mind, it seeps into my heart. Because whatever's in your heart will come out of your mouth. That's kind of the pattern. How do you get strong? You just flood your eyes, flood your ears, and just let it marinate on your mind. As Paul says in Romans, the renewal of our mind that drives us to God. And as that happens, I pray. Because I can't get stuff in my heart. I can't take this and stick it in here. It doesn't work. I don't, I don't know. There's this gap between my head and my heart. But I take this and I put it in my head. It is a grace of God that it moves from here to here. And then it comes out of my mouth. So that's the beginning of this text. And then he goes into verse 2. Probably one of my most favorite verses. And a verse that I want to just drive into you this morning. Chapter 2, verse 2. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. And trust to faithful men and women who are able to teach others also. Notice Paul's encouragement. Be strong by the grace and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, you entrust to other people who are able to teach others also. This is a little summary of the visible application of what Jesus said when he left. As he left, he said, go and make disciples of all the world. I can imagine disciples watching Jesus go up and they say that and they're like, it's like the theory, but how do you do it? How, it's a theory. How do you do it? And that's the, that's the kind of, I don't know, if you've ever been sitting in class, they teach you something, you're like, that's cool, but what do I do about it? Paul is the what we do about it. He says, what you've heard from me, amongst all these other people, they've been around this all the time. So notice that. There's Paul to Timothy with other people, teaching them others, the ones who are faithful, who are able then to teach others also. You notice the four generations that go on here. Paul, Timothy, faithful people who are able, and then the others. This is the great commission as it goes from making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. This is the summation of the Christian life. But Paul doesn't just say, do it. Let me show you how to do it. And he gives three beautiful illustrations of what this life looks like. Just look at those. Starting in verse 3. So these are the three illustrations of what it looks like to make disciples. Do it in this way. Verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is, the one, is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the, share, the first share of the crops. If you go, okay, what does that mean? Paul goes in to say, think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He says, the Lord's going to give you understanding. You think over these things. Let's think over them together. He gives these three illustrations of what it's like to make disciples. Number one, like, an, like a soldier. I'd rather put in there a sailor or an airman. Let's put that. Maybe even a Marine, some of you. But a good soldier, a good soldier of Christ Jesus, sharing the sufferings of a good soldier. And he says this, notice a soldier does not get entangled in civilian pursuits. I took a commission 14 years ago, and uh, I've been in the military for a while, and I've learned this in the military. 
There's only one guy who signs my OPR. And I only work for that guy. And if you've been in chain of command, you know no matter, you may think that other guy, your buddies, his chain of command's cool, he's got some cool stuff going on, but if you listen to his commander, it, doesn't, it, it makes a mess of your life. You have to listen to the one that you are accountable to and like what he likes. Do what she does. You have to do those things. I mean, this was several years ago. I remember before all the stuff happened in, in the Middle East, uh, we were doing all this gas mask training. I was like, why are we doing this? We've been gassed since like World War II. Come on now, there's no reason to do all this, but my boss cared about it, so guess what I cared about? That. Because I am named to, tra- to, to obey the one who's my supervisor. And I think what Jesus is getting at, or Paul is getting at here, is there's a single-mindedness to a disciple. A single-mindedness to remember, as I go in and out and doing these things, in a world of a thousand choices, I mean, all of you have a phone, on your phone, you literally can find out how to do a thousand different things this afternoon in Norfolk. There's a thousand things you can do. And in a world of all these unlimited choices, the scripture gives us clarity to focus on a few. To say our aim is to, is to please the one who enlisted us. The single-mindedness. You know, it's crazy about this. In the military, it doesn't matter... It doesn't matter how long it takes to get a job done. You do not work by the hour. You work by the task. And whatever our boss sends us to do, we do it. We do it with a single-minded attention. And I've been working in the military and discipling God in the military long enough to know that, that as we do this, um, this idea of not getting entangled with other pursuits, the reason he says that because it's a real temptation for us. And my greatest fear for most of my students that I disciple are they're going to be successful at things that do not ultimately matter. They're going to be successful, especially the guys I know tend to be successful whatever they do. Most of the guys who make a good career in the military tend to be successful at life. You don't make it through that long without being good at some things. You tend to be successful. But the problem is you tend to be successful or there's a temptation to be successful at things that do not matter. And I just want to focus their attention to please the one who gave them the higher commission, to give them the higher calling, to focus on that one single-minded obsession to follow the one who enlisted me. So that's his first illustration. And the second one, starting in verse 5, it says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You read that and go, well, obviously. If we're playing basketball and I bring a soccer ball to it, it just doesn't work. You'd be like, well, I can't play that game. And so what's he getting at here? What does it matter? I remember um, I used to swim when I was growing up. I was a little kid. I'd go to the little swimming pool. One of my very first races, I, uh, the thing got off, and I started doing what I thought I was good at. It was the fastest way to get from this point to that point. And I get out, and I win. Everybody's all, like, cheering and kind of laughing. And then they come by, a little official comes by and goes, hey, you're disqualified. It's like, I beat everybody. You didn't do the right stroke. It's like, so? You have to compete according to the rules or you don't get to play. So how does that translate to Christianity? Because if you read your Bible, it feels like there's a whole lot of rules in here. I feel like, which one do I do? Which one do I don't? And so it, it matters to know the heart of the Scripture, to know the heart that Jesus is to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love others as ourselves. And there's a lot of things to do, but the one thing that drives me to want to share with you this morning. One of the, I guess you call it rule, which, whatever, 
But one of the, the ideas that I think matters to us, especially in the military, is a, is a little verse in Hebrews chapter 10. We went over this morning for those who are in a Bible study, but Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 23, 24, and 25, where the writer of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. That don't neglect meeting together. I believe it is a watershed discipline of your life that when you gather regularly with other believers to open the scriptures to pray, that discipline of gathering together, not neglecting to meet up, that is the watershed issue that helps drive you either towards Jesus or ultimately will take you away from him. It's like rain that falls on the continental divide, and if it falls over there, it ends up going to the Pacific. If it falls over there, it ends up going to the Atlantic or the Gulf. It's this decision that if I just don't neglect meeting together, I show up, it's the water falls, and I end up going towards Jesus. So he says, like an athlete according to the rules. I don't know, there's a lot of things that Jesus may ask you to do. But the one that I know is consistently showing up through scripture is show up and be present. Because it's when I show up, I learn how to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and my strength. When I show up, I learn to love one another. I learn how to follow Jesus when I show up. So if you're in the military, the military takes you from here to there and everywhere. Man, you get somewhere, you show up. You show up and you commit. You show up and you're like, oh, i got to go to training next week. But you show up to that first Bible study. You show up to the third one because you had to go to training during the week. You show up whenever you can. And those of you who are not in the military, who have military show up to the Bible study and they ghost you for two weeks, don't think, oh, they didn't like me. No, they probably had something better. They probably had some training to do because they had their one man who enlisted them. They got to go obey. So just assume that, man, they, let me just treat them as though they're in and care for them. And not just that, oh, it's going to take you a couple months to be friends. Military tend to show up and want to get involved immediately. And so creating space to accommodate them coming in so they don't neglect the meeting together. The second illustration, do it according to the rules. And these two, the way that they're done, are both all about intentionality. You don't accidentally do these things. You intentionally follow Jesus by being a soldier, and you intentionally follow the rules of being an athlete. But then it says in verse 6, it says, It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. It's the hard-working farmer that ought to have the first share of the crops. I mean, I've never been a farmer. I never grew up doing that. We lived in suburbs in Texas. I had some family out in the country, and they, did, they raised crops and raised hay and all kinds of things. And it, is, it takes work and intentionality. My grandparents had this huge garden, like the size of this building, huge garden. And as we did that, it was when the, the crops became ripe, those first ones that came really ripe, before we sold off all the rest of them, and those were extra sweet. Those were extra good. And those who worked the gardens and worked there got to have the first share of it and had to taste it and enjoy it first. And I think what Paul is getting at is when we invest intentionally in the lives of other people and we see God work in their lives, we get to have the first taste of joy that goes on with them. The first time of celebrating with them. And it is sweet. It is so sweet. 
when I've walked with young men and they, and they become on fire for the Lord and they, and they see what's going on around them and they all of a sudden take responsibility for their sphere, when they do that and the Lord puts a little fire in their heart and we put a little fuel in it and it burns into a flame, man, that is a sweet sense to walk alongside them. I mean, even just on Easter a couple weeks ago, it was a special day because there's a man that I had been discipling. He'd been in our ministry for four years. And um, this last year, he wanted me to spend a lot of time with him to help encourage him. And he grew up in a solid Christian family, traveled the world with his parents, all kinds of things. And he was growing in an awesome joy of the Lord. But he was missing some things. He was like always lifting his left arm, but never lifting his right. So he loved Jesus, but he didn't really want to know how to make him known. And so we started talking and started meeting and started praying. And I started poking him, saying, hey, brother. Hey, why don't, um, is there anybody in your life that we need to start praying about that doesn't know Jesus? That you are their only Christian. And so I poked him for a couple weeks, a couple months, and said, okay, no, no, seriously, we're going to write that down. So he started praying for his roommate. His name Ben. Ben was uh, from a, a non-Christian family, didn't know anything about Jesus, never heard the gospel. And over the course of, from January through March, I just kept poking him and saying, hey, man, who is this? Let's pray for him. Every week we pray for him. I said, what is it going to take? When are, you going to, when are you going to translate and move from just praying for him to acting on it? So he's like, I'm going to do it. I said, all right. So one night they were sitting in the room, and, and, uh, and Pete, that had been discipling, just said, hey, uh, hey Ben, um, would you be interested in reading the Bible with me? And Ben's like, oh, yeah, sure, why not? I've never read it. That sounds interesting. And so Pete was all excited, so he texted me, and he's like, oh, hey, he's, he agreed to it. Sweet, brother, let's keep praying. And so they started reading every week. Week in and week out. He lived with the guy. So he knew him and walked with him week in and week out. And then finally, about the week of Easter, it's like just a couple months ago, last month, on Easter Day, um, he just asked Ben, he said, hey, do you believe this now? And he's like, yeah, I think I do. He was like, really? Like, you actually, like, actually work? God's actually working? He's like, yeah, I think I believe this. Pete's like all excited. He calls me three times. I reject it because it's like 10 o'clock on a Sunday night. I'm like, why is this guy calling me? So I answer the phone. He's like, you'll never believe. Ben, ben just accepted Jesus. And he's now a believer. It's like, praise God. I get to share in the first fruit of what's going on. I have a front row seat of seeing God work. It's a man that's now being sent all over the place. Because we intentionally invested, intentionally talked, intentionally got to taste the sweetness of it. And I can't wait to get home. Like, we're supposed to meet up this week. And so I gave him some stuff to read while he was out um, the last two weeks. We're supposed to meet up and start reading because they had to split ways. So I get to disciple him for a couple months. I'm just so excited to have that sweetness, that newness. And I pray that if you've tasted and seen that, you remember how good it is. Because it's the intentional planting of the fruit that you then get to have. And it's happened, I've seen it time and time again. And I can tell you story after story of guys that have come through, got to know them, God put them on fire, and they sit somewhere else. Even a guy I met, uh, mentored a couple years ago, who got sent overseas to go study. While he was studying, he started a little community where in his dorm, had people from other countries that were coming to it, led several to Jesus. They went back to their home countries, and we get to celebrate for it. But I'll tell you, not everybody invests in is a good story. And many of you will probably know, if you've tried to invest in somebody, and you get kind of awkward, don't really know what's going, you don't really see the excitement, then you just kind of give up on it. And I know I've invested in a lot of people over the years. And many of them, we'll meet, we'll talk, we'll talk for weeks or months, and then they just pop smoke and go somewhere else. Or they just ghost me. Or they just go somewhere. And I'm like, where did you go? 
And then I see them a couple years later, and they were walking down the street, and they just kind of turn another corner somewhere else because they don't really want to say hi to me. And that's just what happens. And uh, I have people that pour into, they feel like they're just really growing, and then they go off and they talk bad about you. All kinds of things. All kinds of things that happen. But I'll tell you this, investing in somebody else, it's risky. It's risky. The birds may come eat the seeds. The weeds may grow up. You may not get the harvest that you promised. But Jesus said, when you plant, there will be few that you will harvest to the tune of 30, 60, or 100-fold. There'll be some. I want to urge you, it is worth the risk of investment. It's worth the risk of investment. Because I'll guarantee you what you're not going to do in heaven. You're not going to get up in heaven and be like, oh, man, do you remember all those cool military accolades we had back on earth? Man, those are so awesome. You're not going to be up in heaven reminiscing at all the worldly successes you had here. But I do believe we're going to be in heaven reminiscing about the work of God that we got to witness firsthand. So I'll tell you, if there's anything, my favorite quote is by a guy named G.K. Chesterton. He said, if anything's worth doing, it's worth doing badly until you get better at it. And discipling people and choosing to invest in them is worth doing badly. And then you'll get better at it eventually. But you keep at it. Keep at it. Keep intentionally, single-mindedly following Jesus, intentionally trying to do it according to the scripture. Keep at it, keep at it, and you will taste the sweetness of the fruit when it comes off the vine. And when you taste it, you don't want anything else. You don't want anything else. When you sit on the front row and you watch God right before you, you don't want to sit in the back anymore. You'll take, do it all you can to be on the front row again and again. And when you go through times where it doesn't seem like God's working, I don't know. I remember when he did it. I remember what he did in my life. I remember the salvation. I remember the joy. Man, I want to see it again. So go at it again and again and again and again. Because if the Spirit is in you, he is at work through you, and he's at work around you. He's always at work in the sphere of a believer. Always. Always, always, always. He does never intend you to be on your own doing nothing with you and Jesus. It's a great lie of our enemy and our culture to think you need to privatize your faith and it's just between you and Jesus. It's always about you and others collectively following Jesus. And whenever you feel alone, I guarantee you he's at work someone around you. I guarantee it. All you gotta do is look for it and keep looking for it and keep praying for it. And taking a risk and diving in and taking the first step towards Jesus taking the first step of consistency and looking where God's at work. And I'll tell you, you get to enjoy the sweet taste of fruit. And I'll tell you, as you live in this community world, in this, in this, in this uh, military culture, military context that's here, man, there's always transient people coming and going. And it's like the Lord put a little barrel here and put some fish in it and said, you get to fish out of a fishing barrel. Because... There are people that the Lord's going to bring across your path sitting in this church right now who are, who are not being discipled, who yet desire to know God more than they know him now. And it doesn't take work to just say, hey, would you like to go eat lunch? Would you like to go hang out? I know you're new to town. You probably don't know anybody. Well, you may know some guys at work, but you want to go hang out and get to know some other folks. Let's talk about the Bible together. Hey, can, how can I pray for you? All those things are first steps because the Lord literally draws people right in front of you. It's our responsibility to take a step, to engage intentionally with the military. If you're in the military, man, the loneliest place is in the military. 
So I guarantee you the Lord is looking for you to look and to act in your sphere of influence. When you see that you have a sphere, and then you know that your responsibility to reach that sphere, it changes how you engage with your sphere. And when you've tasted and seen the Lord in the front row, man, you start looking where he's at. And I'll guarantee you he's at work in this room and in your office and on your street. It's just a matter of you to look at it and take responsibility to act according to what the scripture is asking you to do. So I urge you, my friends, who's your Paul in your life that's writing this letter to you? If you're the Paul, who's your Timothy in your life that you're writing this letter to? Who are the other faithful people in your life that you're working together with? And who are the others that you don't even know, but you know you're like affecting through the Timothys? For what you've heard in the presence of, from Paul in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful people who are able to teach others also and follow the pattern of sound words that transcend time and draw us close to our God. But it's worth it. It is worth the risk. So my friends, my brothers and sisters, the Lord is calling some of you to act in a way to be involved in the lives of people that are in this community. Some in the military, some just down the street. And I urge you, if the desire starts welling in you, and you feel like, oh, I don't feel adequate to do that, then ask for help. I know your pastors that are here will happily help you. I don't think I've ever met a pastor who's like, man, there's somebody who wants to get better at ministry. I don't really want to help them. That doesn't exist. If you desire to know Jesus, man, you go talk to your pastor. I guarantee they'll help you. They'll help point you in the right direction to get better at what it takes to, meet the, to, to follow Jesus and engage in the lives of those around you. I'm so glad to be with you. Let's pray together, and we'll finish up the service. Lord, you're good to us, and you're gracious to us. Lord, I pray as you work in us and through us, Lord, let us see you. Lord, let us know how to take the next step of obedience towards you. Whatever that looks like. Whatever it looks like. Lord, let us, let us take a risk. Give us courage in our hearts. Strengthen us by your grace to take a step in obedience towards you. And Lord, I pray for the men and women who choose to take that step today. Lord, would you meet them with joy that is indescribably awesome. Indescribably awesome. Let us follow the pattern of sound wisdom that you've been working in the lives of men and women for thousands of years. Lord, remind us the joy of our salvation. And let us help others take steps towards you. Say this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.